1: And welcome to New Books on American Studies. I'm your host, Diana Pasquale. And today I'm joined by Dr. Zach Sands. He's the author of Film Comedy in the American Dream. Zach's doctorate is in American Culture Studies with an interdisciplinary specialization in critical studies in media and film from Bowling Green State University. He holds a master's degree in film and literature from Northern Illinois University and a BA in film production from Columbia College Chicago. He's taught courses in film and media studies. And in 2009, Zach was the recipient of a Fulbright scholarship and traveled to Moldova. Zach's book, Film Comedy and the American Dream is published by Rutledge and you can get it wherever books are sold. Zach, hello. Thanks for joining me and welcome to New Books in American Studies.
0: Hello and thank you.
1: So Here's what the publisher's website uh, has to say about the book. Here's their description, and I'm going to read. And then after I'm done, I'm going to ask you to sort of uh, explain it in a, in a way that maybe a, a layperson might expand, uh, understand a little bit better. This book is an examination of national identity in the era of the American superpower as projected in popular comedic films that center on issues of upward mobility. It is the story of what made audiences laugh and why, and what this says about the changing shape of the American dream from the end of the Second World War through the first part of the 21st century. Through a combination of narrative and thematic analyses of popular comedic films, contextualized within a dynamic historical framework, the book traces the increasing disillusionment with this central ideology in the face of multiple forms of systemic exclusion. It argues that film comedy is a major component of the discourse surrounding the American dream because these motives often evoke humor by highlighting the incongruities that exist between the ideals that define this nation versus the actual lived experiences of its citizens. That's quite a lot. Yes, yes. Can you, can you maybe give give us something uh, along those lines that's more more of a nutshell?
0: Sure, I, I can give you the elevator pitch. It, <laughs> it's a, basically it's a way of looking at history through the lens of funny movies of the past seventy years, uh, particularly films that uh, are thematically linked to some idea of class mobility.
1: Okay. That's um, that's a lot easier to, to grasp. So my next question is about the origin of this project, and um, it, I know that it was born out of your doctoral dissertation. So I'm curious to learn how you came to this topic, um, because among other things, you and I were in the same doctoral cohort. So when did you first begin thinking that this is one what you wanted to write about, and you know what you wanted to work on, and why?
0: Well, as far as this specific project. Um... Back when I was a PhD student, I did an independent study that was basically a lit review of any and all books that I could find in comedy, culture, and cinema. Um, then when it came time to write my prospectus for my dissertation, my idea was basically to write the book that i have been looking for in my research but was unable to find, something that connected the dots between history, mass media, and ideology.
1: So this this work bridges a gap or um, sort of bridges a – is a bridge between, say, something like film studies and cultural studies.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very much an interdisciplinary
1: work. Okay. And so what would your response be to people who might argue that, you know, this topic is too weighty for to be covered through the analysis of comedic films, that um, they're intended to make us laugh, and therefore, you know, they're not really t- to be taken seriously?
0: I, I would say think about how much you can tell about a person based on what that person thinks is funny. and you know, if you take that same idea and apply that to an entire... Culture, more or less. I think you can get some pretty interesting insights. Um, so, I mean, despite the immense popularity of comedic films, uh, they tend to receive less attention among academics and film critics. Um, but I, I think that they can function as time capsules, really, of what was in the hearts and minds of their audiences. And in that sense, I think they're invaluable resources in the study of our social fabric.
1: Okay. So, um So let's get right into the book. In Chapter 2, which you've titled White Picket Fences, you examine how the American dream was gendered, specifically with respect to consumerism and contentment, and you continue some of that into Chapter 3, Wake Up. Um, Was gender something you intended to address at the beginning of this research project, or was it something that you sort of discovered along the way?
0: Well, this project was always imagined as being about the disparities between the American dream and the American reality. And the reality is that there have always been people who were excluded from that promise of opportunity, whether because of gender, race, or class. Um, So I don't think you can talk about exclusion from opportunity without these other things being a fundamental part of the conversation.
1: How has the American dream changed, do you think?
0: That's a pretty big question. That's um, one of the the underlying questions that I I attempt to answer in this book. Um, But I I can tell you the, the, the short version is that After World War II, the American Dream was reimagined in opposition to the Soviet Union at a time when promoting consumerism and the national creed was, as the national creed, was seen as a necessary step in another major economic depression. Uh, The American Dream at that time became deeply entangled in conspicuous consumption and the concept of the nuclear family. And we saw this in films like Father of the Bride and Sabrina, among others, as well as a slew of other movies that were produced around this time. Sure. And then by the early 1960s, I think that the imminent threat of nuclear war really changed the way that a lot of Americans thought about their future prospects. Uh, Their dream was basically to live for the moment, which also meant the possibility of getting rich as quickly as possible. (laughs) Um, So the American dream was increasingly seen as a game of chance around this time. And I I think you see this play out in films like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and, and others, which I write about. Um, And by the 1980s, with the election of Ronald Reagan, the the normalization of the neoliberal economic model around the world and in our daily lives, we saw a new American dream take shape that drew from a sort of survival of the fittest mentality. Uh, Meanwhile, the concept of the nuclear family appeared to be in a state of meltdown. This was seen by many as being largely the the product of no-fault divorces itself, a result of second-wave feminism. Um, Today, the American dream, I think, is in a state of decomposition and decay. (laughs) Well, still just a myth to many. Um, as I write in the book, this plays out in what has been termed the ZOMCOM subgenre, as in zombie movies, uh, as well as the abundance of end-of-the-world comedies that have been released in recent years.
1: So let's let's sort of follow that thread about ZOMCOM, uh, zombie movies. Uh, how do you connect sort of the fascination or maybe even obsession with zombies as it pertains to the American dream?
0: I, I think zombie... I'm, I'm not the first scholar to make note of this. The zombies, I think oftentimes represent consumerism or some aspect of it or capitalism and the idea of just mindless consumption. I mean, that, that's what a zombie is. They, they they just consume a brain dead with vessel. no other reason than the sake of consuming. Sure. And they even want to eat your brains, which, you know, as take away your ability for critical thought.
1: Okay. So what you described earlier about the different sort of, um, sort of maybe touchstones throughout American history, Reagan era, um early 60s. There are a few times when you mention generational differences in in how the American dream is understood, um starting with uh, as I already mentioned the period immediately following World War II. Do you see <clears throat> how conversations that are sort of happening today about millennials and their disillusionment with the American dream um and that millennials today have a more, more favorable attitudes towards socialism and sort of collective um, participation as a, do you see that as a result of the lack of economic opportunities and their, and their substantial student debt? And do you think this indicates a shift away from that sort of individualist focus you mentioned in your analysis of it's a mad, 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 mad world?
0: Uh, well. There's kind of a lot to unpack there, but I I would say that the the American dream is constantly being renegotiated from one generation to the next. And we see this play out in in comedy films, and this this is where the conversation takes place largely, I think. And it's about redefining the terms of our social contract. And as I discussed throughout this book, one of the key venues in which this discourse takes shape over the past 70 years is in the movies that make us laugh.
1: So, uh many of our our grad school instructors will be pleased as was I that you talk about Walter Benjamin's um piece of writing uh, the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, right? In chapter tra- classic Benjamin, <laughs> in chapter 2 you uh white pick fences you describe Benjamin's ideas about film being used as propaganda. <clears throat> in fact, you write uh, film, as an immersive and kinetic medium has the power to change hearts and minds, whether consciously or unconsciously, and so it was used by the War Department for precisely this purpose. moving images and and the rate in which they relay information to the audience can allow them to do so without the discriminative filter of critical thought. While I agree that benjamin 's argument was valid in thirty six and in sixty two which is your cutoff for this chapter, um, chapter two, White Pick Offenses. Does this still hold true in 2017 with our ever-increasing mediated landscape?
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I think sometimes the best place to sneak in ideology is right under your nose. Uh, when people are laughing, they, they often fail to realize that they're even be, being manipulated by propaganda. And at the same time, though, I, I think that comedy can also serve as an effective countermeasure in resisting this kind of manipulation. That's why it, it's part of... a, a a broader conversation that, that goes both ways.
1: Uh, it sounds kind of sneaky too. <laughs> For sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, a little bit later in the book, you write that comedy separates emotion from intellect, which is why it can be inherently political without appearing overtly polemical. Is this still true today in our contemporary moment?
0: Well, of course. Um, I mean, I, I think comedies can sometimes address films they address issues that more serious films wouldn't dare touch. Um, movies like *Citizen Ruth* comes to mind, which I don't write about in this book, but it, it's it's a black comedy about abortion. And I think that had a more dramatic film tried to tackle that subject, it would come off as preachy. Um, and, and that's that's essentially my point: that they're able to deal with this topic in a way that, since we're laughing at it, we kind of forget that we're being um, that we're, we're dealing with serious topics.
1: So, so that brings me to my next question, which is how how did you actually decide which movies you're going to choose to write about for this for this project?
0: Well, uh, my number one criteria was that it, it had some kind of a social significance. Whether that meant uh, whether it could be reflected in box office figures, it could be um, you know deemed culturally significant because it, it won Oscars or it was nominated for something or it was critically acclaimed. Um, number of reasons of. Just it, it had to be something that a lot of people saw, basically, because that meant that it it, uh,
1: it crept into it, the culture. It kind of is, is a
0: stand-in for it, it, you could look at it as a stand-in for a segment of culture itself. Okay, kind of in terms of the the ideology in it. So that, that was the main thing. Was that it had to be a popular comedy film? It Had to be a film that was marketed as a comedy. I don't, I don't consider myself to be an arbiter of of good humor. Um, This is a a study of ideology and history, not aesthetics. Um, uh, So these are not necessarily movies that I particularly thought were hilarious. Some of them I did enjoy, but... Moreover, it was what was popular at the time, and what does this say about the culture?
1: Okay, it, well, in your first part of your answer, you mentioned that um, it had to have some type of cultural significance, and that could have been indicated by box office figures. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when you talk about the 80s and um, the switch to VHS, uh, and then even like piracy and digital sort of streaming, that box office figures now really aren't maybe such an indicator of a film success. So how do you think a movie that is sort of slipping in ideology now, um, how do you think that becomes a a culturally significant uh, is the sort of phrase you use if we can't rely on box office figures, I guess? Well, I mean,
0: box office figures are never really that accurate of a measure. They're they're just form one metric, uh, one way of of knowing that a film was seen by a lot of people. Okay. Obviously, that gets a lot more complicated as you get in a home video and have a streaming video where the these numbers aren't even released. We don't, we don't know how many people stream a movie legitimately or illegitimately. Okay. So yeah, that's why I had to look at other things other than just box office figures and things like that. I, I should also note, too, that all of these films feature a protagonist whose central goal features some aspect of upward mobility. So, um, All these movies are about characters who want to either maintain or improve their position in life.
1: Okay. Um, I would like to address that this book doesn't really read like most of the books that I have read about film history or cultural history. And what I mean by that is that it's very, very funny. What was your approach to the actual writing of this book? And, you know, it is a, it is an academic book. Um, It's grounded in, you know, um, some really smart things, but you managed to come off very, very funny in this book. So what was that like? Was it a struggle or did it come very naturally to you?
0: (laughs) I'm naturally very funny. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I, you know, it's, it's a good excuse to be able to put comedy in, but it it kind of emphasizes the point that I'm trying to make in that, you know, by making a point with comedy, I'm making the point that comedy can make a point.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, uh, I want to read an excerpt from the, one one of the many parts in here that made me laugh out loud. When you're describing the film Harlem nights uh, and the sort of critical and cultural reception, or the, I should say the media reception it got um, during its, its um, wide release, <clears throat> you write about um, several uh, incidents that took place at theaters that were screening Harlem nights and which were, had to do with violence erupting um, at these theaters. And during one of these stories in California, which is a very tragic story, a 17 year old was shot and killed. Um, An article appeared in people magazine that quoted a mall security guard as saying that this movie glorified violence and it was soon pulled from half of the first run theaters after its fourth week and the rest of them by week seven. And then in the very next paragraph, after you uh, describe the ways that driving Miss Daisy is very unlike Harlem Nights for a variety of reasons, you add as the concluding sentence for this paragraph, sadly, it seems that the mall security guard had nothing newsworthy, newsworthy to say about it. And there are lots of lines like that in in the book where you seem to be planting these like very dry, I I, I guess I can't call them inside jokes, but they're very... They're clearly um, jokes that you're laying on the reader. I,
0: I like to reward the reader for paying attention. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> All right. Um,
0: and, and there's no reason that, that academic books should be painful to read, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I wanted to write the book that I, I couldn't find when I was doing my research. So this is uh, – I want to make it something that would be enjoyable to read.
1: Okay. okay. Um. And you, you also had mentioned to me at, at earlier when we were talking about this that um, if when you go to academic conferences, usually the comedy panels are the ones that really fill the the, the rooms uh, on the schedules. Um, and so, hopefully, uh, that's a really smart thing to say. Hopefully, by saying that and by more books being funny like this, we can get more comedy panels at academic conferences. I think that would be great. Yeah. Um.
0: But it's true, and I think that a lot of scholars are looking for some kind of comedy relief when you're at these conferences all day and you just sat through a panel on the use of the, the color red Oof. or whatever, you know, it's something, something that is just very esoteric and yeah. um, maybe kind of heavy. It's, it's a nice change of pace to go sit on the comedy panel and where people like me throw in jokes too.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's much appreciated. In some of your other writing, uh, you you write uh, not a, a lot, but you have written, especially uh, a lot last year, uh, you publish at a, at a little blog you have called mrspectator.blogspot.com. And in one of the posts on there that I had read, you described... Uh, when you were living in Moldova, you were watching some local programming, and you weren't really understanding the language as as well as you could, but you didn't have a problem understanding the joke of the scene. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. Um, when when we lived in Moldova, we, we got in HBO Romania. Now, I should say that when you live overseas, some things are way cheaper and some things are more expensive, and our cable was, was like 12 bucks a month, and we got free uh, HBO Romania. Um, every once in a while, there was a stand-up comedy special on Okay. And whenever this happened, I would I would try to watch it. I mean, A, because I, I enjoy comedy, but B, because I, I was trying to learn Romanian at the time. Sure. Um, so I, I would watch these. And by, by the end of my time there, we were there for about for one academic year. And by the end of our time there, my Romanian was, I wouldn't say I was fluent, but I was to the point where I could get through a whole day only talking to my, my spouse and children in English. Oh. So it, I, I could do day-to-day stuff um, and, and get back. But anyway, so I was watching uh, this HBO Romania comedy special, and I could understand most of what was being said, but I had absolutely no idea why it was funny. Huh. And, and I, th- I think that speaks to the, the, the need for cultural context, why context is so important to comedy. And, but I think the, you can look at the inverse of that, too, and, and that by studying comedy, you can learn about the cultural context.
1: Was were the other things about the performance similar to stand up comedy in in uh, the U.S. Like was it? A, I'm assuming it was a guy. It was. So was it a guy just standing up with a microphone, or do they do it differently over there? Yeah, it was. It was same it look looked, of everything. Yeah,
0: everything looked just like any other stand up comedy special I'd seen, um, except I didn't know why it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but it, and I think that just has to do with the. I mean, so much of comedy comes from the, the nuances of language, just the, the shades sure. of difference. And if you don't understand the, those nuances, then the jokes are lost. Right?
1: That's why jokes don't trans Some jokes don't translate well from language to language, okay. but, but physical humor does. Sure. So that's why, you
0: know, Jackass does
1: so well overseas right. where little Miss Sunshine doesn't. Gotcha. That's a great example. Um, you mentioned a character or the use of a character towards the end of the book. when you talk about um, the two thousands, um, uh, even towards the, the end of the, the nineties, but you talk about this, this man child who is typically, but not always a white man of privilege looking to find their way in the world. And that sort of marks their success or their, you know, their social sort of status. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk more about that particular character? Cause it's, it's really, it shows up a lot, uh, especially yeah. in the last 20 years.
0: I, I think the, the reason why we've seen so many of these man child comedies is because of the, the waning aura of the American dream. The, the, even even white men, <laughs> yeah, are, 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 like it's out of reach even for people who, who think it's their birthright. Wow. You know, people who, um, and I say this as a white male too, but it, it, it's, I think the, the reason that the man child comedies have become so popular is because they, they represent a, a prescribed path to a scaled down version of the American dream. It's, they're kind of morality tales that if you, you know, get off the weed and get your shit together, That kind of thing, then, you know, and and get a real job and settle down, get a family, you know, do all these this checklist of the American dream. Then that's what it means to achieve success. If you don't do that, then you're a loser, and you're marked a loser for your whole life.
1: Okay, so if that is if that's the formula of the of the. The f- comedy of the last twenty years of this particular type of comedy. Um, then why is it that sounds sort of depressing and cynical? So why do people laugh at it?
0: Because it gives them power over it. And it I mean,
1: Be- by the, the, it, because it, it, because they're acknowledging that it exists. So that, is that why?
0: Kind of. I mean, it, I, yeah. I think this is how we we reconcile these the things that just otherwise we don't don't really make sense to us. That, that I mean, they if, if we didn't laugh that, that we'd cry at this stuff. And,
1: you. It's yeah. So this. I guess this leads me to a question. Like my logical next step is in the book you you sort of try and define sarcasm as the disappointment of an expectation, and then your um, and then the sort of expression of I was expecting this, and then this other thing happened, and now mm. I'm disappointed about it. Is that also why we see maybe memes and internet? Uh, like on Twitter and things like that, that sarcasm is used more and more often as a way to express disappointment and maybe even like anxiety about employment, uh, economics, finance, security, stability, things like that. Sure. It's
0: it's a, it's a way of intellectually reconciling these differences between what we want and what we have.
1: That is illuminating, but also sort of terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) but uh, I, I definitely, I, I get, I get what you're the landing. These
0: things makes them palatable. It makes it so that we can kind of wrap our heads around and apply them to our own lives,
1: and not stick our heads in the oven.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. So I want to read an excerpt from something that you wrote on mrspectator.blogspot.com, which I think is, uh, just a really great piece of writing. It sort of connects with the book that you've written, um, in that it it focuses a lot on consumerism and and contentment or whatever. Uh, but here it is. You write here in America, we have a tendency to conflate consumer choice with freedom. We are exposed to literally thousands of advertisements every day. And over the years we have been programmed to identify ourselves through the brands we buy. Do you prefer Coke or Pepsi, Ford or Chevy, Converse or Nike, Fender or Gibson, Mac or PC, iPhone or Android, Pabst, Blue Ribbon or Heineken? Blue velvet reference, Dennis Hopper's best line. Uh, Democrat or Republican, now consider how much of your identity as perceived by others is defined specifically by your loyalty to a certain brand. Who are we without these things? Um, Putting that sort of quote in context into today's culture, uh, everyone has been talking incessantly about this strong divide, this this uh, divisiveness in... um, both politics and sort of everyday life. Do you still feel that it's that brand connection relates to identity or is it something, is it, is it, has it changed from what you wrote uh, a couple of years ago?
0: No, I, I think it's very much true today. Um, I'll say that the, the Mr. Spectator blog that I was working on, I was, I was doing that for the first half of 2017 and it was really a labor of love where I was just um, yeah, investing a lot of time and energy in this thing. And it basically, after I finished writing the book, I uh, wanted to maintain the habit of writing every day, so that, that was one of the things that I worked on um, to just yeah, keep keep the gears moving and, and keep me sitting down behind a computer and writing every day. Um, but it, it, uh, but it, as far as like are these things still relevant? Like yeah um, yeah, I mean, look around you. You're exposed to thousands and thousands of brand names every day. that you can't go anywhere without being exposed to advertising of some kind. Now, I think it's it's a sickness.
1: It is becoming more and more problematic, especially as companies expect us to seem to want to do a lot of their work for them in brand right. evangelizing and product sort of um, push marketing. Um, so, so you've written this book, right? Mm. You uh, <clears throat> you've taught before media studies. How would you? use this book in teaching it would you teach a course on film comedy and the american dream or would you sort of incorporate it into a larger sort of teaching project or class how would you use it how would you also how would you because i've been thinking about using it for a class how would you like uh, academics to use it within with you know sort of within teaching
0: well yeah i, I think it, it, it lends itself very well to to being worked into a syllabus um because each chapter there are five chapters total um, and the first is, is just kind of setting up the argument and talking about the relationships between comedy and culture and history and, and a little bit of lit review and all that. And then each chapter after that, though, uh, I do there's usually like three or four sections in each one. And each of those could be a week, like you could spend a week on that section and watch the, the two films or whatever that I talk about or one or two films that I talk about in that section. And so, I mean, that said, you, you could, it could easily be broken down into a, 15, 16 week class where you're watching the films that that correspond to these various chapters. And I I think it would actually be pretty seamless. Really.
1: So since this is your dissertation and you know, you you turned your dissertation into this book and it's it's published through through Rutledge. uh, So is this like, are you the film comedy in the American dream guy now? Like how do you, do you talk about it a lot in um, your academic job search? Uh, is this where you, is this what you'd like to continue to focus on? Do you have other research interests in film or within cultural studies that you want to pursue, or do you want to sort of continue, sort of expanding this? What do you want to, what do you, where do you see this going? Well,
0: I've I've always been very interested in comedy, and I expect I'll always be very interested in comedy. But um, one of the the great benefits I think of being an interdisciplinary scholar is that I can pursue whatever interests I want to pursue. If, you know, wherever, wherever my muse takes me, I I can study that thing. And that's, to me, that's the great appeal of interdisciplinary scholarship is that I'm not limited to a certain discipline. If I want to learn about something outside of like something tangentially related to this, then I kind of have that freedom as an interdisciplinary scholar.
1: My next question for you. um, I wanted to ask you about, um, what was the most challenging uh, either from sort of adapting this from a dissertation to a book for Rutledge? What, what did you find that you had to either change or adapt or, or what was, you know, something that you, I don't want to say struggled with, but you know, it's something that had to be done to, to make it from one to the other thing.
0: I, I should say that I can, I always conceptualize this as a book. Like I said, when I, when I first, Started working on it, I was imagining it to be the book that I couldn't find in my research. Right. right. So I, I kind of I, I always imagined it as a book, not a dissertation. Okay. So, I, yeah, even my dissertation really reads like a book. I think. So that said, I, there weren't a whole lot of changes made. Uh, mostly, it's just making for making it more for an international audience.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Was one of the things. Um, How
1: did you? What did you have to do in order to do that?
0: I just take out things like our. Nation, oh, okay.
1: Gotcha. Like that.
0: Sure. Um, but it just yeah, mostly just smaller things and polishing. But it, as far as the actual structure of it, it was it was always meant to be a book.
1: Well, my guest today has been zach sands he is the author of film comedy in the american dream it is published by rutledge and you can get it wherever books are sold zach i want to say thank you for um, being my guest today on new books on american studies and i encourage everyone to read your writing at mr and also to read your book film comedy and the american dream zach thank you so much thank you very much dan